morning, Providence. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we do love you, and we love your Son, who is the the perfect expression of your manifold excellences, your bottomless compassion for sinners. We celebrate the fact that we are gathered here this morning as those who love you. We celebrate the fact that we are here loving you because you are a God who takes those who hate you and gives them life from death, transforms them into saints. We do love you. We acknowledge before you this morning that we love you because you have, you have saved us from our hatred. And we celebrate the fact, Lord, that there is no sinner beyond the reach of your mercy. We remember the time when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we had not yet been brought to life in Christ. We thank you, Father, that because of his work on the cross, because of his resurrection from the dead, your compassion for us was made real in us. Father, we look forward to opening your word this morning that we might see more of the Lord Jesus more of His limitless power to save. And we pray that as we do so, that we would be energized to speak the truth of that limitless power to a culture that seems beyond the reach of your mercy. We would leave this place believing that there is no one beyond the reach of the mercy of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 7, Mark 7. I would like to begin by asking you to think about the lost people in your life, family members that don't know the Lord. Who are those folks? Just take a moment and think through who are those people. Your friends who don't know the Lord. Co-workers. They have not followed Jesus Christ. Think about their names and their faces. Neighbors. Picture them all as if standing in a group before you, unsaved family, friends, co-workers, neighbors. Of that group, who would you say are the two least likely to follow Christ? 
who are the two least likely to follow Christ? If you have a pen and paper, would you write their names down? If you are too modern for pen and paper, would you put their names in your phone? The two who are least likely to follow Christ. And of that same group, who are the two that you would say are the most likely to follow Christ? should have four names. We'll come back to those later. We come upon a story in Mark this morning, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, where Jesus has an encounter with a woman. And everything about this situation, the geographical location, her nationality, how Old Testament history and theology informed the scene, the circumstances, in Jesus' own initial words to her, everything about it seemed to indicate that she is about as likely to receive grace from Jesus as she is to sprout wings and fly to Egypt. This story looks to be one thing. But it is something quite different. And Mark intends to show us there is no such thing as a soul too far away from grace. The abundant and sufficient forgiveness of Christ reaches to all who come to Him in faith. With that in mind, let's, let's stand together. And we'll read just the first few verses of our passage this morning. We're going to read Mark 7, 24 through 27. Mark 7, 24 through 27. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. May be seated. Now, there's some theological groundwork to be laid if we're going to understand what the Lord says here and what He does after in the following verses. The, the first layer of, of that groundwork is that God's plan of salvation from the very beginning was. Jew first. God's plan of salvation was Jew first. God's plan from the beginning was to bring salvation through the Jews to the Jews. Bring salvation through the Jews to the Jews. So let's talk first of all about that through the Jews part. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and many of you are familiar with Genesis 3. The serpent deceived Eve. And she and Adam both ate the forbidden fruit. 
And having rebelled against God, they became sinners and brought condemnation upon themselves. And the New Testament makes clear to us that Adam also passed that sin and condemnation on to all those who came after him, as is shown in the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 4. Adam passed that sin nature down to his son Cain. But in Genesis 3, in proclaiming judgment upon the serpent, God said that he would put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And he promised that the seed of the woman, Eve, a descendant from Eve, would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, there's going to come a day when a descendant from Eve would make everything right again. Everything that was perfect prior to this horrible event, everything was going to be made right because of this descendant of Eve. And the rest of the book of Genesis shows God beginning to keep this promise by preserving the line of Eve, preserving the seed of the woman through Abraham, who was the father of the Jews. As we continue reading in the the Old Testament, we find further promises there in the Old Testament making clear that salvation for mankind was going to come through the Jews. And that's a reason for all the genealogies that we we read about in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament. The biblical authors are making sure that we understand that there is a line that can be traced from Eve to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. He's the salvation that comes from the Jews. God's plan from the very beginning was to bring salvation through the Jews to the Jews. So let's talk about the to the Jews part. God chooses a very particular people chosen strictly according to grace. That's reiterated over and over in the Old Testament, perhaps most clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's by God's gracious choice that He chose this one people and they are the Jews. It's clear from Genesis chapter 12 on that the Jews are very special to the Lord. Every other people on the planet are lumped together into another group that the Bible just calls Gentiles or the nations. So we find over and over God preferring the Jews over the nations or over over the Gentiles. God saved Israel from Egypt, the Gentile nation. God brought Israel into Egypt. Canaan, the Canaan land, a Gentile land, and he took that land from the Gentile nations and he slaughtered the Gentiles and he gave that Gentile land to Israel. Fast forward many years into the history of Israel, we find that even as God sent the Jews into exile because of their idolatry and and hatred for one another and mankind, even as He's sending them into exile using foreign nations, using Gentile nations to punish them, still the Jews are precious to God. And so He uses Gentile nations to punish the Jews, but then He punishes the Gentile nations for mistreating the Israelites. We find in the prophets, for example, Isaiah 43, the Lord saying things like, I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. Yahweh clearly favors Israel. 
it's a major prophet, Isaiah. We find this kind of thing also in the minor prophets, Hosea chapter 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Speaking of God's people, His chosen people. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. If you're familiar for the, with the Old Testament, you know that, that Adma and Zeboiim, they were Gentile cities, often listed alongside Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord is saying, how can I treat you like these Gentile cities and nations? And though all the, all the nations on the earth, all of them were estranged from God by the sin of Adam passed down to them, God gave the law, the covenants, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the promises, everything to the Jews. The Gentiles were far away from God in every way while the Jews were brought near. God is bringing salvation through the Jews to the Jews. Now, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus has gone to the region of Tyre and Sidon, ancient Gentile cities. But as we read closely, it does not appear that he's gone there on a missionary endeavor. Rather, he's there to rest. Verse 24 says that he went into a house and did not want anyone to know that he could not be kept silent. And that impossibility of keeping word about Jesus closed up, that's a theme in the book of Mark. Word about Jesus can't be kept quiet. It's not that it shouldn't be kept quiet. It can't be kept quiet. When people really understand who Jesus is, word about Him can't be kept quiet. And so, this woman hears about Jesus, that He's in this house in verse 25, a woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit. She does what so many others before her have done. She falls at Jesus' feet. And if we're just reading the story, we, we, we think in the context of, of earlier Mark, we think, well, this is Jesus' wheelhouse. He's going to crank this out of the park. But then Mark adds a complicating detail. In verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile. And Mark does, Mark does not allow us to just infer from the mention of Tyre and Sidon that this woman was a Gentile. He makes sure that we understand this is a Gentile. More, more specifically in the original text, she's a Greek. She's Greek in terms of her language and culture. Specifically, she's born in, in Phoenicia in the southern part of Syria. She's a Gentile. She's far from God in every way. She is not one of God's chosen people. She's not a Jew. And she, this Gentile woman, she begs Jesus to cast this demon out of her daughter. Now, this, this scene, taken out of the context of the rest of Scripture, isolated to Mark, we would expect Jesus to just jump right on this. But in the context of, of the Old Testament and everything that, we, that the Old Testament says about the, the, the Jews being, being precious and salvation coming through the Jews to the Jews... Well, then what Jesus says to her, though startling to us, is perfectly understandable. Verse 27 again, he said to her, let the children be fed first. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, dogs in ancient Palestine 
We're not like dogs in modern day America, not beloved pets. Just do a search, an Old Testament search on, on the word dog or dogs, and you'll find that they were scavengers. Jesus is not equating the woman with a dog, and that's what some people, as they read this, they want to do with it. They want to go a little bit, bit too literally, but he is using an analogy. And the point is that there, this is a matter of priorities. If you have children to be fed, beloved children, flesh of your flesh, are you going to take food out of their mouths and throw it to dogs, throw it to scavengers? Of course not. You're not going to do that. Well, Jesus is from the Jews, and He has come to the Jews. So what Jesus says here, it simply reflects God's eternal plan and how God has set apart Jesus as special for the Jews. And if any Jew were watching this scene unfold, they would not have been at all surprised by what Jesus said. They likely would have thought this woman was wasting her time. There's no, there's no way this is going to happen. You're, you're Gentile, and that's just the way that it is. This is, this is our Jewish Messiah. He's ours. But there is a key word that Jesus uses, and I'm sure the woman didn't miss it. We shouldn't miss it. Jesus said, let the children be fed first. First. So how, how, it, it, is, it is not that scavengers don't eat, right? They eat what is left by others. And that one word first allows Jesus' analogy and the rest of the story to picture the truth that God's plan of salvation was Jew first and also Gentile. God's plan of salvation was Jew first and also Gentile. So the Jews, they, they had all the revelation of God, the promises, the covenants, the law, the prophets, every advantage. And one reading the Old Testament might think that if anyone, if anyone is going to recognize the Messiah, would recognize the salvation coming in Christ, it would be the Jews. I mean, they've been primed for it in every way. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they're far away. They have none of those advantages. Highly unlikely that any of them would ever come under the saving compassion of God. But, see, it's God, God's plan of salvation to bring salvation through the Jews to the Jews and the Gentiles. It's just that the language of favor for the Jews in the Old Testament is so prominent that it's possible for us, it was possible for the Jews of old to miss repeated Old Testament statements of God's intention to save Gentiles as well. One place where we see both intentions, God's intention to to have a people through whom He will bring salvation and to bless all peoples through that salvation. One place where we see both of those intentions is in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, where God called Abram. I'm going to read those first three verses of Genesis 12 to you. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now in in those first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, we are right 
to see a people coming from Abram who are going to be a special nation. I'll bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you. I will curse. The people who came from Abram were going to be a special people. But there is also in those verses this clause in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed. And Paul in Galatians takes that as a reference to the Gentiles. And indeed, the New Testament teaches that Christ has brought salvation to the Gentiles. If you're taking notes, you might write down Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, which reads, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When when Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins, it was not for Jewish sins only, but for Gentile sins also. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he rose for the justification of not Jews only, but he rose for the justification of Gentiles also. And it is by his atoning death on the cross that forgiveness is afforded to believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And they are all reconciled to God the Father in one body with Christ as their head. Now, that might make us wonder, why then does Jesus seem so slow to do anything for this Gentile woman right here in Mark chapter 7? If we're familiar with the other Gospels, we might also ask, why in Matthew 10, as Jesus is sending the disciples out on their missionary journeys, why does He send them only to to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Well, it's because the good news was to go to the Jew first. And when the Gentiles had largely rejected Christ, then the good news would go to the Gentiles. Jesus tells us a parable to this extent in Mark chapter 12. Uh, Turn with me over to Mark chapter 12, if you would, please. Mark 12, beginning in verse 1. Mark 12, beginning in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he again sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, and some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Now, this is a picture of the kingdom coming to the Jews, the Jews rejecting Christ and killing Christ, and then the kingdom is taken and given to the Gentiles. Now, if we, if we rewind back to Mark chapter 7, that has not yet happened. The Jews have not yet definitively rejected Jesus. And God's plan at the point of Mark 7 is still that, that Christ, his, his focus is on the Jews. Okay? Now, now, does that mean that Christ is completely closed off to the Gentile? His initial words to this Gentile woman may sound like it. They sound like it in verse 27. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But this woman, as she hears Jesus say that, as she hears that analogy, she hears hope in that analogy. Her reply is indicative of humble faith. Let's look at verse 28. She answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, there's just so many things that that, that could be said about her reply. I want to point out five of them to you. Five things that we could could see in in her reply to the Lord. The first is that she appeals, the fact that she appeals further implies belief in His compassion. She believes that He's compassionate. Many people, after hearing what Jesus said, they would have just turned around in defeat and walked away, thinking, well, he's clearly not going to help. But this woman believed better. She believed rightly. She believed what she had heard about Jesus. This is a man of compassion. If I appeal to him, he will help me. Second thing we can derive from her words is that she does not argue regarding her estate. She does not argue regarding her estate. You are right, Jesus. I have have no place at the table. I have no claim to who you are. I have no claim to what you do. And, And that's what she's saying by accepting his analogy. She doesn't argue with the analogy. She takes the analogy and runs with it. Yes, I've got no place at the table. And that brings us to a third thing. She, she does not argue with his priorities. She, she, she doesn't say, hey, look, Gentiles are people too. This isn't fair. She knows Jesus owes her nothing. She acknowledges his right to do exactly what he's doing, his right to prioritize the Jew. She doesn't deserve anything, which is to say she recognizes that for him to help her would be nothing but grace. Fourth, we can understand from what she says that she will humbly take his scraps. She'll humbly take his scraps. Well, I'll take the crumbs. You know, dogs aren't proud. Those of us who have dogs, does your dog ever stage a hunger strike until he gets a place at the table? No. They're happy to take whatever falls off the table, and that's, that's the way that she is. This woman shows great humility. Just the crumbs, Lord. Just the crumbs. I don't deserve anything, but can I have the crumbs? And fifth, her words imply the conviction that the crumbs will be sufficient. Even the crumbs will be all that's needed to set her daughter free from the forces of darkness. 
Lord, this is is a small thing for you. It's a small thing for you. I just need crumbs. This is deep faith in the power of Christ. Multiple commentators note that Jesus' initial comment here was not designed to cast her away, but rather was intended to provoke a statement of faith like this. Jesus wasn't pushing her away. Rather, he was testing faith. It it, it is not the case here. We we ought not read this like a a, a real-life Rumpelstiltskin. So she just, she just outdoes him. She outreasons him and she bests him in his little riddle here. And so he's like, oh, you got me there. Take your miracle and beat it. No, he, he, Jesus is eliciting faith. This is exactly what he wants from her. And it appears that Mark, by placing this story here and giving the details that he does, he wants to forecast hope for the Gentiles. Which brings us to a final step. Jesus saves all who come to Him in faith. Jesus saves all who come to Him in faith. Do you remember, those of you who were here last week as we were looking earlier in the chapter at verses 1 through 23, there's a tiny detail in the text and we kind of ran right past it. Jesus said to the disciples in verse 18, you can glance back up at verse 18. He said, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And, And then Mark adds this editorial comment. Thus he declared all foods clean. Thus he declared all foods clean. And that's an odd comment to add given that it seems to have very little to do with the main point of, of the passage. As you may remember last week, it stood out as maybe a little bit odd and we didn't spend much time on it. However, its placement is interesting. He makes this statement about all foods being clean. And then in the very next passage, he shows a Gentile approaching Jesus and ultimately receiving compassion from him. Now, why would, why, why would we find that timing interesting? The reason that it's interesting is because it mirrors thematically the sequence of events in Acts chapter 10. If, you, if you're taking notes, you might write down Acts chapter 10 and read that chapter on your own time this afternoon. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version right now. Early in chapter 10, Peter has a vision of animals being lowered from the sky on a sheet. Animals that, many, many of whom in the Old Testament were considered unclean, meaning that the Jews didn't eat these animals. And a voice came to Peter saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter protested saying, I've never eaten anything unclean. He said, I can't can't do this. And the voice responded, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. Now, if if that portion of Acts chapter 10 was divorced from its context, we might think, okay, well, once again, just like in in Mark chapter 7, we're just seeing that there's no such thing as unclean food. Jews could eat anything they want. And, and certainly that is, that is a, a valid application, just surface level, that certainly is there. All food is clean. But the more significant implication comes later in Acts chapter 10, when God miraculously sends Gentiles to Peter to hear the gospel. 
See, up, up to that point in the, in the, the storyline of, of the book of Acts, the Spirit had only been poured out on Jews. But it's then that the deeper meaning of the vision of the animals is made clear to Peter. The removal of distinction between clean and unclean meant the removal of distinctions between Jew and Gentile as it pertains to the work of the gospel. And as this dawns on, on Peter, he says to these Gentiles who've come to him, he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And he goes on to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And he concludes in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, with these words, to him, to Christ, all the prophets bear witness that Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. We have that same sequence here in Mark chapter 7. Early in chapter 7, the distinction between clean and unclean is removed. And then this interaction with the Gentile woman showing that God's compassion extends to the Gentiles also. Now, look at 729 with me now. And Jesus said to her, for this statement... You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. For this statement, for this statement, remember, what, what, what is that statement? It's that great statement of faith in the previous verse. For this statement, because of the faith, you may go your way. Humanly speaking, who, who could have been further from help than this woman, this, this Gentile? But she came to Christ in faith. Her response to him oozed humility. It, it, it spoke of acknowledgement of her need and acknowledgement of his great sufficiency. She trusted him, him alone. And so... Here we have displayed the deep faith of a Gentile, very similar to the deep faith of many Jews that we've seen previously in Galilee. And so Jesus did for the Gentile what he's done for so many others. But the spectacular nature of what he does underscores the openness of his compassion. Look, look, look again at what, what happens here. It says, the, the demon has left your daughter. The verb tense is, is, is important here. He's not even there, and he wields extraordinary authority over the demon. Jesus isn't saying, look, by the time you get there, it'll be gone. I'll work on it while you're walk, walking. You go ahead, and I'll, I'll work on it. No. The demon has left your daughter, it's done. And she gets there and he's right. The same verb tense is used in, in the rest of the verse. She gets there and she finds that the child has been laid in the bed and the demon has been gone. What outrageous power is this? Jesus has brought miraculous intervention to this Gentile just as he has to the Jews. We've, we've noted repeatedly that the Lord's miraculous works in Mark are emblematic of all of His saving work. So when, when He heals, when He casts out demons, it is a picture of His rescuing sinners from darkness. This scene depicts hope for anyone, not only the Jew, but also the Gentile who comes to Christ in faith. 
The Gentile who comes to Christ understanding that he or she is under the condemnation of their sins and that Jesus Christ, His atoning death and His, his life from the dead is the only thing that can save them from the wrath to come. That person who comes to Him saying, just the crumbs, Lord. I trust in You alone. That Gentile, just like the Jew, will have life in Christ. Is there anyone off limits to the grace of Christ? Is there anyone beyond his reach? Of course, sitting here this morning, we, we likely would all say, no, of course not. But I, I do wonder if we really think that way, if we really think that way. Is it, is it possible that we do think of some people as more likely to be saved and others as Unlikely to be saved. If you were, if you recoiled at the questions I asked as we began this morning about the people that you know who are lost, who is the most likely to be saved and who is the least likely to be saved, if you recoiled as I asked those questions, then good for you. If, if you didn't recoil, don't feel too bad. I asked those questions because I think most of us actually do differentiate. I do. I think we... Most of us probably do. I could be wrong. But I think we do, and I think that we allow it to influence the way that we interact with these people. We allow it to influence the way that we interact both with those unlikely to be saved and those that we deem to be likely to be saved. We allow it to influence how we engage them with the gospel, how we pray for them, and what we expect God to do. Well, it it would be great if, if God saved that person. I just don't see it happening. And so we, we, we don't reach out in love. We don't press in. We don't talk about Jesus. And we don't pray expectantly, fervently, consistently. Well, it would, be, it would be great if God saved that person, but she's, she's, she's deeply entrenched in a particular lifestyle, and there's, there's just no way. Or his entire livelihood is tied up in paganism. I mean, if he, if he followed Jesus, he would lose everything. It, it would never happen. Or... She's a militant atheist. It, it, it would take a miracle. I don't know if you've ever heard those kinds of things. I've thought those kinds of things. Who on earth are we to talk like that? It always takes a miracle. Every, every conversion is a miracle. I mean, what is, what is it when a dead person comes to life? I mean, it's a miracle. You know, the little girl, we got a lot of little girls growing up in this church in homes where Jesus' name is spoken every day. That little girl is as dead in her trespasses and sins as the new atheist who makes a living writing New York Times bestsellers about the, the untruths of Christianity. Both require, both require, but a crumb from the table in order to be transformed. The Spirit of Christ has but only to whisper, live, and it's done. How, how could we think 
How could we think such little thoughts of the saving power of Christ? That we, that we will engage the one, but not the other. And how could we think such little, little thoughts uh, about, about our own sin? How, how could we think of some as likely and unlikely to be saved? There's, you know, there's no such thing. 100% of the people who, who trust in Christ will be saved. And 100% of those who reject Christ will be doomed. Everyone, everyone is as lost as they can be until they trust in Jesus. Now, here's, here's another label that we may use, different than the likely and unlikely. Think, think about this one. Deserves to be saved, doesn't deserve to be saved. Now, if we, if we stop and think about it theologically, of course we know that doesn't hold water. But we look at some people, maybe even ourselves, as being in one or the other of those camps. We think, that, that person has just done too much. There's too much evil there. I mean, some people just shouldn't go to heaven. Or if we're turning that on ourselves, we may think, there is no way that God could love me. And I've, and I've heard the good news. I mean, you person sharing the good news with me, I've heard it. I've heard it, but you don't know what I've done, and God does know what I've done, and there is no way that God could love me, and there is no way that God could save me. I just don't deserve it. When we think that way about ourselves or others, we have gutted the gospel of grace. When we do that, it's, it's just no longer good news. It's, it's a, uh, Christianity becomes a religion like every other on the planet. The true good news of Jesus Christ says, no, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ as Lord will be saved. Not because faith is inherently powerful, but because the object of that faith is inherently powerful. And so l listen to me, you, you struggling, you who are struggling to believe that the forgiveness of your sins is, is even possible. It just seems too good to be true. Let me tell you what's true. There is no sin too dark. And there's no mountain of sins too high. But that the crumbs of the grace of Christ can't overwhelm it. You have but only to believe. And, and those of us who know that person who, who just seems too far off, they are, they're, they're outside the reach of grace. Do we think so little of, of Christ that He can't reach them? And do we implicitly think so little of our own sin, perhaps that Christ only saved us because we made it so easy for Him? Let us believe the Word of God and go to those in the deepest, darkest holes of sin that we can find and boldly share Christ with them, knowing crumbs will do. As, as, we, as we close, I would, I would encourage you to do with me three things. First of all, thank God that though we were far off, we were far off. By the blood of Christ, we've been brought near. Second, let's take those four names that we wrote down at the beginning of the message this morning. 
Let's take those four names, two of whom we regarded as the least likely to be saved, two of whom we regarded as the most likely to be saved. Let's take those four names, put them all side by side, discard all categories like least likely and most likely. Let's consider them all easily within the reach of the grace of God and begin earnestly praying for all of them, lovingly reaching out to all of them, consistently giving the gospel to all of them, expecting big things from an infinitely compassionate and powerful Savior. Third, let's consider how will we regard our own past and trust Him with it if we believe what we've seen today. I'm going to pray, and after I've prayed, then we'll have a a few brief moments of silence, and we can consider continue to consider these things and what the Lord would have us to do in response to the word that we've heard. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you that though we were once far off, you have brought us near by the blood of Christ. We pray, Father, that with each passing day, that would not become less wonderful to us, less miraculous to us, but more wonderful, more miraculous, more joy-inspiring. And we ask, Father, that as 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 we consider these these, these names that we've written down, Father. You, you would grant us to see them all as well within your power to save. And we would begin to engage them in conviction of that belief. And that you would grant us to see them converted, Lord. That you would use our words, our hands, our feet to bring the gospel to them, to bring the love of Christ to life in front of them so that their eyes are opened, their ears are opened, they're granted understanding. They see the magnificence of Christ, His ability to overwhelm their sins with but the crumbs from the table. Oh Lord, grant them to be saved. Grant us to witness it. We pray further, Lord, that as some of us continue to struggle with pasts of sin, perhaps presence filled with sin, that we would see your grace as overwhelmingly more powerful than the guilt of our sin. That we would put it in your hands. Trust you for forgiveness. We ask these things in Jesus' name.